Verbally Effective with Ina Esco is an interview-style podcast that intersects art, culture, politics, and entertainment with a Memphis focus with producer Sanaa Marie. Each week, I'm joined by a featured guest with roots in Memphis. Verbally Effective delves into each guest's personal journey to uncover the incredible stories fueling their purpose the highs and lows of their pursuits, and how through their passion, they are moving the culture forward. Be sure to follow Verbally Effective and Ina Esco on Instagram. Also, download the Verbally Effective podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Don't forget to check out the website and submit to be a guest at verballyeffective.com. Hey, it's Jessica Benson from Grind City Media's Rise and Grind with Jessica and Megan. I'm hanging out with Ina Esco on the Verbally Effective Podcast. Yo, what's going on? This is Eric Hennigan, and I'm here hanging with Ina Esco Double E on the Verbally Effective Podcast. My name is DeAndre Brown, Executive Director of Lifeline to Success, and I'm verbally effective because I've been charged with speaking for the population of people that have been unheard for so long, the convicted felons. I'm blessed to share with Sister Ina. Hopefully enjoy the show. Pastor DeAndre Brown is the founder and executive director of Lifeline to Success, a re-entry program for ex-offenders that equips them with the necessary tools to re-enter society. Pastor Brown founded Lifeline to Success because he found his own re-entry after 25 months in state and federal prison to be very difficult and cluttered with obstacles. Instead of complaining about the problem, he and his wife, Vanessa, decided to begin an organization dedicated solely to streamlining the re-entry process and advocating for justice. DeAndre and his wife, Vanessa, have eight children and one grandson, He is the pastor of Lifeline to a Dying World Ministries, a place that teaches the word of God. The church takes the untaught, the members that no one else will embrace because of background or current situations, and teaches the love that God has for anyone. An avid sports fan, you can hear him cheer for the Grizzlies and Dallas Cowboys. He is an alumnus of Rhodes College and the Lemoyne College, both in Memphis, Tennessee. Verbally effective, your double E, Ina Esco here. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to episode 135 of the Verbally Effective Podcast. You guys have been rocking with me for a long time, almost three years now, and I appreciate you guys so much. You know, you can get the Verbally Effective Podcast on all podcast streaming platforms, your Spotify's, your iTunes, uh, Spreaker, SoundCloud, we are on there. And before we get started with the interview today, I want to remind you guys that the Verbally Effective Podcast has made the ballot for Memphis Flyers Best Local Podcast. I need you guys to vote, vote, vote. You have until September 16th, and the link to vote for 
Best Local Podcast with the Memphis Flyer is in my verbally effective Instagram bio. But hey, let's get started with my guest for today. He and I are both alumni of Lemoyne on College, the Lemoyne on College. And his name is DeAndre Brown, and he is the founder and executive director of Lifeline to Success. I'm going to let DeAndre explain what Lifeline to Success is, but just know he has been advocating for so many people that are ex-offenders to re-enter into society, which is very important because I know you've been hearing about your Kim Kardashians and Monica's as of late advocating for people to um, get out of prison and come back into society. But DeAndre has been doing this a very long time. Ain't that right, DeAndre? That is right. Almost 11 years. 11 years. That's a long time. Yes, ma'am. They didn't think we'd make it here. I didn't think we'd make it this far, but God has been kind. Yes, he has. Always. Welcome, welcome, DeAndre, to Verbally Effective Podcast. You and I have been, uh, you know, seeing each other here and there over the years. I'm like, DeAndre, I'm going to get you on the podcast. (laughs) We are here today. I'm so glad that you've joined me today. We're going to get into Lifeline to Success, but we're going to start at the beginning, as we always do, Mm -hmm. on the Verbally Effective Podcast. What part of Memphis are you from, DeAndre? It depends what, what year. South Memphis, Westwood, uh, a little bit of Raleigh, depending on what time of my life you want to talk about. Oh, wow. Which one Which one do you call that's my hood? Most of the time, South Memphis. We, I, that was more of the, the project time with my mom. And uh, that's, that, that was a more, um, more deep roots, I would, if you will, in South Memphis. Okay, South Memphis. But you didn't stay in South Memphis, right? Right, right. I grew up. I was born in Memphis. Uh, then uh, my, I was raised by my mom, my great aunt, and my grandmother. My mom had me in Memphis when she was 16. So I was shipped to Arkansas with my great aunt, who was born in 1918. Wow. She had no children, but she had raised my grandmother and then my mom and my aunt. Okay. So it was just next in line for me to show up over there and then help her around the house. I was there till I was in first grade came to Memphis on the weekends with my grandmother. I didn't know that my grandmother had was doing it because my mom was on drugs. Okay. That was something that kept for me. So I would go to Arkansas over, during the summer and over the weekends. Then I came back to Memphis first through third grade and I attended Westwood Elementary. And then I was sent back to Arkansas because I got chicken pox in fourth grade. Wow. And that's where I ended my, my uh, secondary, well, my ed- elementary, junior high and high school years was spent in Arkansas in the segregated South, but I was still coming to Memphis on the weekends and during the summertime. Wow. So I had that dichotomy of experiences where in Arkansas, I was literally in the segregated South. We had white towns, black towns, don't go over the tracks here. Really? Oh, yeah, it was, it was real. I was, and since auntie, that's why I called my great aunt, was born in 1918, she had a real fear of white people. Mm. So she instilled that in me. Ooh. I was going to school with mostly white people. Uh, and I was the only black boy in my class. I mean, only yeah, I was the only black boy until I got in junior high. Then there were two of us. Wow. Then in eighth grade, our schools consolidated. So it was a school that was predominantly black that came. It was still majority white, but I was elected as class president in the eighth grade. Don't know how. Okay. Yeah, okay. don't know how. Uh, <laughs> ran with it. Okay. I was always a good student because auntie told me, if you want to be good as white folks, you got to be better. Mm. So she told me. So I said, okay, if you do those things, then life will offer you opportunities. Because Auntie had eighth grade education, and she was a medical assistant for a doctor. 
and she did that until she retired 25 years later. She delivered babies, gave shots. She did. She was a basically a nurse without the formal education. Uh, so she told me, if you want to do it, you got to do this. So I said, okay, yes, ma'am. I was since I was on the blackboard, of course, I was the star athlete on the team. Okay. But I was smart too. I was the mm-hmm. smartest one in my class. So uh, I had everything necessary to be successful in life. And then with her telling me what I had to do, I went to school and did exactly what she told me. Graduated wow. the top of my class. I was class president. If it was an organization with a president, I was the president. Now, student government, class, a National Honor Society, Teens Against Drugs, whatever we had, I was the president. So much so that no one ran against me. And being in the segregated <laughs> South, the counselor in my 11th grade year called a meeting with me and a few uh, classmates, a few white ladies, and asked somebody to run against me for class president because nobody would. Wow. Of course, they, of course they declined because they knew they wouldn't win. Okay. And so that's, that was my, my, that was my school experience. But at the same time, I was coming to Memphis on the weekend, and I was living in Foot Homes. So there were some things I was exposed to in the projects that made me a superstar when I came back to Memphis. Like what? Like what? Going to a club, going on Beale Street. You got to remember, <laughs> I'm dealing with people that live in the country. I'm a country boy. So if I went to the big city when I came back, they wanted to know what I did that weekend. Who I danced with, what you know, all those things. It was, it was just funny mm-hmm. to live that way. Let me say this: uh, I have a great grasp of the English language. Uh, I, I know how to make my subjects and verbs agree. But sometimes in casual conversation, I let my participles dangle, and I don't complete my words. So if that happens, and someone's watching, that is intentional. And it's not that I am I'm, uh, otherwise unable to communicate effectively because yeah. we're verbally effective. You are verbally effective, DeAndre. <laughs> and you know what? I mean, just listening to the story of your upbringing, you were with an aunt that was born in 1918. I, I know there was a lot of wisdom in the house that she you know, exposed to you on, yes. a, on a huge level. But I heard what you also said. She had that fear of white people. So how did you balance the two? Growing. It was difficult at first because I didn't really understood, understand what that meant because there was really no, where I came from, it was a, it was a poor region, so everybody was poor. So it wasn't, it wasn't like that the white folks would, would I would have said, thought they were better. And, and when you were in school, we were friends. The biggest thing for us to do in the country was go to school. So yeah. we, had fun, we had the bonds and relationships. And I'm a nice guy, so I had no enemies. Everybody was my friend. And since yeah. I was the only black boy, all of my friends were white growing up. They okay. didn't treat me any differently. But it was just that she told me those things. And as I got older, though, junior high, high school, you started seeing people shift away, uh, go into cliques, uh, different mm-hmm. ideologies started to bear their rear ugly head. And you began to understand that life was a little different. Still nothing covert, but you could see it was taking place. And, and one of the things that I, I tell people about my upbringing, I work hard now because I come from a place where when you're poor, you have to do everything yourself. If something breaks in the house, you have to know how to fix it. Now, I'm 12 years old trying to fix a, uh, a light in the kitchen. So, um, the toilet stopped up. I got to figure out how to unclog it. We didn't have, uh, we had running water, but we didn't have a system like the city. So we had a septic tank outside. So there was things you just had to do to know how to do in the house. And in 10th grade, our pipes burst. I'll never forget it. Uh, we didn't, we were so poor, we would drive down the street and pick up cans. And that, <laughs> imagine being on the highway in your car. We, we, the only way we got a car was until his brother-in-law passed and gave us a car. So we drive down the street, and we'd be going like five miles an hour, and you have to open your door and leap, ring, reach down and pick up cans, whatever's in them, pour it out, put it in a bag, and put it in the car. And, and we do that day after day. And you know how embarrassing it is? Because everybody know the car. You know, they know you're picking up cans, you ain't got no money. 
in tenth grade the pipes burst, so we we didn't have any more running water at the tenth grade. So from then until I graduated, we had to tote water, and I think one of those, that was one of those things that really instilled character, because you can't make excuses when there's no water. If you need to use the toilet, you got to go get a bucket, five gallons. If it's 20 degrees outside, you got to go get that bucket. If it's 110 degrees, you got to get that bucket. If it's three o'clock in the morning and it's snakes outside, you got to go get that bucket. No, we don't make excuses in my house. So as, as I grew up, that was one of the things that was instilled in me. But the problem was when I went to Rhodes College after graduating high school, got a full ride. I only applied to two colleges, Rhodes and uh, Morehouse. Uh, got accepted to both scholarships. I went to Rhodes because my girlfriend was open dorm. She could stay in the room. So I'm going to Rhodes. Played football, ran track, did those things. But I didn't understand how, and I'll say this, I, don't, I didn't understand how re- racism really worked. Since I was in Rhodes, it was predominantly white college, uh, liberal arts university, universe, liberal arts college. And they had this, you know, if you, have, you have your quotas you have to meet. And there was 15 of us that came into the freshman class that were black. We had our own little table in the, in the cafeteria called a rat. We sit in one spot. And when we went to, think midterms I got my grades back and I was doing great in all classes but one I couldn't get props that right I couldn't figure it out and the coach told me just drop it told everybody on the team to drop the class nobody told me dropping the class meant you would be part-time and being part-time meant you lose a scholarship they didn't tell me that so I did it dropped my class and I was then I'm called into the bursar's office to tell me I no longer have scholarship and I have to go back one more semester let me do another semester but I, I've got to make an A in two classes I made an A and a B plus so I was kicked out of Rose. And then uh, that's when I went down the wrong road, stopped making bad decisions because they sold dope next door to my mom's house. It was a trap house in Memphis on cold. And I realized that like at three o'clock in the morning, people were still coming through. Uh, and I use a little street lingo sometimes. Cone was coming through the cut three o'clock in the morning. Ain't nobody outside, but it's a bucket. It's right next door to my mom. I figured, hell, I can get some money if I get on this bucket. I don't know how to do it because I'm green. I'm a straight nerd. I'm, when I say nerd, I, all I lack was to be glasses. <laughs> so, but I figured if I could get some dope, this was in 1994, and dope was everywhere. I got some dope. Six rocks, you get to do it 100 back, keep 20. Got me six rocks, got on a bucket. Didn't know what I was doing. and didn't want the folks to know I was selling dope because I'm a geek. I'm supposed to, I was going to be a doctor. So I had the guy next door who was, a, he was on drugs. He was 38. He was twice my age. He was my mentor. He would take the dope to the car for me and sell the dope to the guys. They had a long thumbnail. I didn't know why he had that long thumbnail. I give him a 20. He'd bring me back $10 or $7. What the rest of the money, dog? That's all they had. Well, he was doing is breaking the dope in his hand and then going to smoke the other half himself. I knew he so was I'm getting a, a little bit too. Yes. So I'm in debt to the dope man. He mm-hmm. come to the house with a 357, walking in the dope. Well, my money I ain't got no money. Took my kickbox. My mom in the house too. So we ended up getting my getting my mama gave me the money and got my kickbox back. But after that, I was in the street then. Don taught me everything I needed to know. I learned the language, I learned the dress, I learned the economy, I learned how to rock dope, I learned how to bring it back, I know how to do the shake. I learned all this stuff because I figured, hell, I'm smart. You teach me. I went from being the guy that was being manipulated and taken advantage of, but I ended up going to prison. That was the godfather. If, if you had the need, if you needed it, I got it. Wow. I went to that, yeah, it was. Shh. You went from being a nerd to a dope boy. Straight all the way. That quick. All the way. Just, just like that. Oh, got arrested wow. the first time by accident because they thought I was somebody else. Uh, but that's how they do. They do it wasn't him, but they figured I, I must be guilty of something because they had followed me in my truck. The police had followed me to my aunt's house around the corner from my mom's house. And when I saw him get behind me, I said, I'm just going to go in and pull up, pull in the yard, went in the house. Police officer comes in, guns drawn with their lights on. Hey, do you him? Come here. What do you mean? 
you ran track, didn't you? I said, what you mean? Because you're fast. I said, huh? You jumped those fences like nothing. Said, what fences? You just saw me get out the truck. <laughs> Put me in the backseat of the car, took me to 201 Poplar. I got out first time offense, so I got out ROR. But after that experience, one thing I was, when I was locked up in prison, one of the things the white guy told me, he said, the problem with being locked up is after you get locked up, you're no longer afraid of being locked up. And that's true. Because the fear is what happens and you don't know what's going to happen when you get inside. Mm-hmm. But after you get inside and realize what it is, there's no fear of going. It's not just a frustration of being stuck there. So after the fear was gone, it's open season. Scared man, dead man in the street. You can't be scared. So I figured out hustles. I stopped selling dope because dope wasn't what I wanted to do because you had to hurt people. Uh, if folks didn't pay, you had to beat them up. You know, I don't want to whoop nobody over $20. But you had mm-hmm. to because folks would take advantage of you. So you actually I, had to do that, DeAndre? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I slapped me with a pistol. and I mean, it was, oh, yeah, <laughs> it was. Not, I cannot see you doing that, DeAndre. Thank you so much. Yes, I love it. Yeah, I was uh, I was not a nice man. When I, when I look at my, my, my criminal history, it's so funny. You look at the record. Like, why did that, that? I remember I was in prison. So I started, turned my life around when I was in prison. And I uh, started becoming, I was a preacher. And one of my friends came with my wife one time to visit me. And all he brought up was all the stuff he used to do. And I felt so ashamed of it. I kept changing the subject. So I'm like, because I kind of forgot most of this stuff. And I'm in it working on me right now. I'm getting right. Like, wow, that was, I was not a nice man. But thank God for changing grace. Amen, amen. Now, how many times have you been incarcerated? I've been arrested, I think, seven. Seven. Uh, yeah. And, and so when you've been in, in the system, you don't call jail incarceration. It's just arrest. You know, you've been arrested seven times. Incarceration, when you get a sentence to go to prison, they don't have it once. And uh, but when I was arrested, the first time, I got probation for six years, theft over 100000 then the second time, it was some other stuff they put together and I got set up, but not set up. I was doing a dirty drop, but the police caught on to it and they delivered the stuff hot. And uh, that was my second time. It was, then I got my federal charges with bank fraud and conspiracy to commit bank fraud. And they, I was running on other little charges. Then the fed charge came and all of it came hitting me at the same time. So I was already on probation for my first charge when I got my federal charge and other charges. So I was facing 13 and a half years in the state and not sure what the federal charge would look like. And I found out about my federal case. And I already talked to the FBI, but I thought, you know, I think you can get away. They had sent the folks to get me. So I was in 201 Poplar. And a week later, the federal indictment finally came down. When the federal indictment came down, I was scared as hell because it was 25 count indictment. Each count, minimum advancement, but five years for the first count, up to 25 years, each additional count was 25 of them with a million dollar fine for all of them. And I'm in jail, you can't run. I got to do that. I didn't know what was up. And I found out because I was in, in my cell and I called home and talked to my mom. When I talked to her, she was crying. What you crying for, mom? You ain't seen the paper? No. I said, give me the paper. Give me the paper. I didn't need the paper. And I'm in the newspaper. Wow. Talking about my charges. And I'm looking at like, ah. Then the next day I went to court. Fell to court. Found out what it was. Thank God it wasn't that bad. I only did 25 months total. I didn't tell nobody. Yep, yep, they ain't telling nobody because there wasn't nobody to tell them. They stayed in federal. I got grace and God was good. And, uh, so I ended up, I even got out of federal prison early because uh, in the federal system, there's no parole. You have to do 85% of the time. But there was a white guy in there who had a lot of money and he had petitioned the court because you're supposed to get 10% of the time and half the house. Well, U.S. Attorney Ashcroft had changed that rule so you only got uh, 10% of your time. So you got six months, but you they, they changed it. So I got an 18-month sentence. I should have been doing six months and half house and uh, seven, eight months in prison. But I would have, have had to do 15 months in prison. But they changed the rule. 
out of all these prisons, the federal prisons in the world, they have them all over the world. Uh, the only one that the rule was changed was in my prison. It was changed for 30 days. I was the last person to get it. And once I got it, they changed the law back. I tell people, I'm like Paul, he was on that boat. And they, all the prisoners were saved because he had to get to Malta. Yeah, I got to save everybody because if I, you got to get where you're going. But everybody else get to save, get saved because you on the boat. I said, I told people in prison, y'all getting out because I'm here. Because I got to go do some work. I meant that. They think I was playing. I'm so serious. The Lord blessed me to get out of prison early so I could come out here and start working. And I ain't going to quit. I know you're not, DeAndre. Now, let's talk about when you went to jail, DeAndre. Tell us about life in jail because, you know, some of these young men out here, you know, they, they even hear about how it is in prison, but still make some decisions, they get them there. Tell these folks about what jail is really like. Gotcha. So, and it's different on different levels. That's why God blessed me to see the different levels. So I started to one popular, which is the county jail. Did six months there, which had been several times. I left there and I did nine months at Athena Farm, which is the Shelby County Prison. And after I left there, I went to Mason, Tennessee. We did a month, which is a federal holding facility. And then I was shipped to Far City to do my federal time in federal prison. Um, and at each level is different. In, in, in jail at 201, everybody pretty much knows somebody in there, so they get cool and calm. And they think it's okay. Problem is, you can't go home. The one, one of the most degrading things about incarceration for me was I was at 201 Popular, and they came and did a shakedown. Now, when you're in jail, you don't own, you own your, your stuff, but you really don't own anything because you don't own yourself. When you get arrested, you become state property. Literally, your body is a property of the state. So that's why they give you a number. You're a state property. You, you have no control over you. So you have no agency. So they did a shakedown. And what they did is they took all of them out of the room, put us in the hallway, made us sit Indian style in the hall. After you strip down, and you're sitting out here, and then they start going in your unit, and they just start ripping the stuff off your bed and going through your stuff. Oh, no. Watch it. And they do it so aggressively, and they just throw it any kind of way. No regard for the fact you made your bed, you got your pictures on it. They just throw everything because they can't. So you sitting and watching this, and it's so hard. The first time it's so heartbreaking. I feel so violated. Then they come and search you, make you get naked in front of all these people. Bend over, cough, spread your butt. It's like, dude, it's six niggas out here. Right. Everybody, the fat one, the skinny one, the one that got bumps, the one that got bruises, you know, the junkie with the scratches, all that. You get to see all of this. That's humiliating. Then you supposed to go back in there and lay down. Mm. Go and, and, go to bed. And, and they do this to you to embarrass you or to like haze you and break you in? All of it. Because they think that the, 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 the mentality of most of the prisons and all the, 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 the training is that you're supposed to make it so uncomfortable that people don't want to come back. But what they don't understand is a lot of people that come to jail or prison are living in a worse situation than being incarcerated. So, so that doesn't work. work. You can't you tell can't somebody who lives in an abandoned house that has no running water and has no hope that jail, jail is worse than that. that. So now when you're trying to make this inconvenient, he's straight. He don't care. Now you're just being rude. Now he's finna get violent, finna buck the system. What you gonna do? Put him in a hole where he can be by himself? He loves that. Hell, he live alone. They don't understand it. They did. They didn't know. So then when you go to prison, it's different because in jail, people have hope. Because they get on when you go to prison, it's different because you know how long you're going to be there. Yeah. And okay. when you know how long you're going to be there, you begin to operate differently because uh, people that have a long time are in the same place as people with no time. And when you're in a place with a person with a long time, they don't want you laughing. 
They don't want you talking loud. They don't want you doing any of those things because that's disrespectful to them. So you can't even have a good time. You got to be quiet, walk on eggshells because some of them may not be going home. So what is it to him if you do something? He don't care. He's not going home. So you have to really understand how to do that. It's it's difficult to develop a relationship because you can't trust us. But the hardest part of prison is just doing the time. Because yeah. you can't go home. You don't have, you don't any, have any direction. direction. You have no you have control. control. Uh, and, and whatever they say to you, you got to be right there. And, and you get to, when you call home, you hear things, you miss birthdays, you miss holidays, you miss the connection with people you love. Because you can't love nobody in prison. You just in there. And you alone. That's the hardest part. Yeah. Now, how did you change your life while you were in prison? Well, it's 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 like a storybook, really. I was in jail, started to one popular. And I was bored, no lie. So I've been to jail a few times. And I was the pod man. So at 201, if you come in over here, you have to take a shower. There's some showers downstairs and hold them, but you still got to take a, that's the rule, take a bath, shower before you don't get bumped. Well, I was the pod man. It was my job to put people in the shower. I just took it upon myself. So dude came in one day, and I'd been in jail for three months. Started reading my Bible because I was bored. And I'd been reading it for like three months. Every night. That's what I started to read. And it made sense to me. So I was reading it, but I was still five man. Dude comes in and he's gonna be on the bunk beside me on the top. And he didn't take a shower. So now everybody watching me. That's awesome in the unit in the park. They're looking at me like he didn't get a shower. So hey bro, catch the shower. Who? I took a shower downstairs. Says that's good. But you gonna get to ask the shower. He looked back. Kept putting stuff on the bunk. So I set up. And when you set up, put your tennis shoes on. That means you finna fight. So I set up. Put my tennis shoes on. Everybody know what that means. He know what it means. He kept putting stuff on the bus. Okay. I walked in there. Turned the shower on. I sat back down. Say I took a shower downstairs. All right. Get your bad ass on up there then. You ain't got to talk to me like that, bro. He put on it. Then he went and got in the shower. They moved me the next day. Moved me to the sixth floor. And when I was up there, I didn't know anybody in the new unit. I'm reading my Bible every night to go to sleep. Older man sees me reading my Bible a few days in and says, hey, young brother, I see you reading your Bible. There's some Muslims in here trying to convince some of my young brothers to become Islamic. I need you to start a Bible study with me, a prayer circle, so we can kind of get them out of there. So, cool. First night, the older man reads. There's three people in the circle first night. 64, un- six, 64 guys in the unit. Two TVs. First guy comes in. He reads the, reads the scripture and prays. Second guy, read the scripture and pray. Then the third night, my turn. Read the scripture, talk about a minute, pray. We go around the second time. We do this every night. You're in jail. What you gonna do? So second time, my, my turn came. I read, read two scriptures, tie them together, talk for about two minutes, and pray. Third time around, I read three scriptures, put them together, talk for like five minutes, and pray. They said, you just do it from now on. Because the circle started getting bigger every time I did it. And started, the Bible makes sense. I feel good about myself. I had some attention from the people. Officers started to respect me a little bit. And one night, Thursday night, never forget it. Thursday night is when Thursday night raw comes on. There's two two TVs in jail in a unit. And everybody watches wrestling, but me, I don't never watch wrestling. But they would have people in front of both TVs on the first circle. Well, this one night in particular, the 64 guys in the unit, 60 of them in the circle to hear me preach in jail. And I'm an inmate. Some guys didn't want to still watch wrestling. Not only that, when you do count time, it's time to catch your bump. It was so many people, I got excited. I can't. I, I preached too long. Officer Penix comes to me instead of telling us to stop. 
and get on the bunk. He said, I'm going to count you with y'all, let you keep going. Okay. <laughs> Finished up, went to bed. So every night from that point on, I preached in the, I preached, I preached a message every night. Had to do the research, the study and all that. Read the Bible three times, front to back. And that is what started me on a different direction because I told the Lord, if you get me out here early, I'm going to keep doing this the rest of my life. And he did. Wow, amazing. And you have been doing it for the rest of your life. So when you, you know, were, was released from prison, how did your life change, DeAndre? And how did you begin like finding success? It was difficult because when I came home, I had all these dreams that I had written down. Before I went to prison, I had a cleaning service. And that was how I kind of hid my money because you couldn't tell me how much money I could have because I own a business. So I said, I'll come back out and I'll do it again when I come out. So I came out and we started, my wife and I, she was my wife at the time. We married a year after. When I came out, we started it again. It was doing well. Had a hospital contract and uh, made made a hundred something, six figures. Got a full staff working for me in this hospital. I'm, I'm the director of environmental services. I've written, their, I've written their manual to keep their hospital certification for environmental services. I'm, the, I'm in the meeting with the leaders. They wanted me to be a volunteer chaplain volunteer had to do a background check when they did a background check and realized i had a record they took my contract hired my folks to be working for the they hired my people to be employed at the hospital and not many months later we ended up losing the house and we ended up in a homeless shelter mm. so i had a few little smaller contracts that kept us fed but that was it and at the same time we had started lifeline because i wanted to go back in prison and help people hooked up with prison fellowship and i said i want to go to prison and preach he said, we're not preaching right now. We're doing this thing called reentry. Now, I'm outside of prison. I have no idea what they're talking about. So what is reentry? It's how, how you help people that have been released reenter society. So, okay, let's do it. We, just, we decided to start a program in the prison with the women, with prison fellowship. Six months in, prison fellowship says we're done. We're leaving. 12-month program. So I got a decision. Do I leave these women that I've developed relationships with and convinced to get in this program, or do I continue working with them? She said, we're going to continue working with them. And in the process, we were developing Lifeline, working with the women inside, developing a criteria and a program inside. So when I came out, I'm still homeless, <laughs> in a homeless shelter with my family. Uh, no money coming in. But I was determined to do this work. And it came to a point where I had to make a decision. Do I keep working at night and trying to do Lifeline in the daytime or do Lifeline full-time? Lord said, stop doing the work at night. I quit. Uh, it was hard. But people started supporting us. People would give yeah. us donations. And, and Lifeline started making not a lot of money, but we had a few little contracts to pay the bills for a little while. And that mm -hmm. was 11 years ago. And uh, You never could have told me 11 years ago we'd be in a situation now where we have all these folks working for us, contracts from the city, county, working with all those people. Until my part of my testimony is when I was arrested, I was wanted by the city of Memphis, Shelby County, the state of Tennessee, and the United States of America. I've had contracts with the city of Memphis, Shelby County, the state of Tennessee, and I'm working on the United States of America. That's amazing, DeAndre. You have literally turned your whole life around and your experience in prison, you know, really shaped the work that you do today. Now, let's talk about like, you know, the current administration, uh, because I heard what you said. You have contracts with the city, the government. Let's talk about the current presidential uh, administration. You know, I, I see a lot with um like I mentioned before, uh, a lot of these celebrities are trying to advocate and seek out Trump to help them get someone they love out of prison. Is that an easy process? And, and, and you know, Trump, I mean, do you really think that 
he is, you know, a person that is all about prison reform and, you know, doing certain pardons, or is it really like, you know, at his preference on, you know, who he wants to pardon? I know, I know he makes the decision, but is he fair and just about it? Because we know the justice system is really not just. <laughs> right, right. One of the things I say, because I'm in the process now of attempting to restore my rights. I hadn't done it on purpose, but I think now this is time for me to get restore my rights. So I went through that looked online and all that. I love the fact that celebrities are coming to the forefront to assist individuals who are reentering society. Uh, I looked at, I saw a stat that in President Obama's term, he had pardoned about 1,800 people for maybe getting my numbers right, right or wrong. Donald Trump has only pardoned less, he's pardoned less than 40. Wow. Totally. Yes. And this um, is last year. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hopefully. So, so the process it's is important. difficult. Yes. The process is difficult. And it's not really a the media has twisted it to make you think it's the president's decision. There's a staff and a team in place to vet all of those applications. And okay. then they make recommendations. Um, what happened though with celebrities is celebrities kind of circumvent their process. Uh, they make it they bring it to the forefront. And what I found is in America, if you bring something to the light, the squeaky oil the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Mm -hmm. So if you start to talk about a thing, then they want to make some of those conversations die down. They try to appease you as opposed to really making systematic change. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that, that frustrates me is uh, the process to become a citizen again is so difficult. They don't really want you to become a citizen, even though people say they do. Uh, I'm, I'm in the fight. Again, I'm, I've been out of prison now 15 years. And I don't have my rights. Part of, it is it, part of it is intentional. And I don't think anybody would oppose me restoring my rights, but I haven't done it on purpose because I don't think I should be special. I don't think I should get special treatment because I've developed relationships with people that use my face for political gain. Mm. So right now, DeAndre, you can't even vote? Right, I can't vote. Wow. But what I found though, is I know people that make decisions and legislators, uh, those, those governing bodies, in those relationships, while my vote does matter, and I, I'm going to get that back, I have the ability, though, with the relationships that I built, to control the outcome of decisions, even if I don't out control the outcome of the election. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And you see how people are using your your name and your face to, you know, bother their way into situations. But yes. What? But you know what? It's all going to work out. You're going to get your rights. Is that an easy process trying to restore your rights? It's really not a difficult process. Most folks just don't know how to do it. You, you petition the court, and then it's up to the judge to make the decision whether you qualify or not based on what you've done since you've been released. Uh, a lot of people don't go for it or don't try, uh, think mainly because they don't know. And secondarily, it really isn't front of mind. You know, when you come home from prison, you're trying to find a place to live, trying to get your driver license, social security card. You're trying to, you're trying to reacclimate yourself to being free. When you come home from prison, that's a culture shock. Prison is a place that traumatizes you. No one come home, comes home the same. You come home either better or worse, but you are traumatized just from what you see. Not, the, not so much from the violence, just from the way people are, are hopeless. Uh, people can't sleep. You know, all those tough guys you see talking about how they're going to kill everybody? At 2 o'clock in the morning, all you hear are, are sobs and cries. The tough guys, and they say are crying because they want to go home. And they're really not going to go home anytime soon. They can't get high because it's hard to get drugs in there. And, 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 and the, the mask has been removed. And you hear them in there. And, and all you can do is cry, too, or try to find ways to comfort yourself. I still don't believe I've been to prison. You can't, I know I have. I got the proof. 
but I, I don't believe it. I, I still can't. And I survived. Uh, not yes, only did I survive, I came out better. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't because the system did anything for me. It's because I did the stuff for myself because I was away from all the distraction. But the sad part is so many people go into their warehouse and they come out damaged goods. And then the system isn't set up to receive them or to help them and could care less if they re-enter positively or not. Because our state right now in Tennessee has contracts with prisons that have to remain 90% filled. If the beds are 90% filled, you pay for an empty bed. So here I am trying to fight for people to turn their lives around and not go back to prison. But if I keep a person out of prison, the same people I'm asking to give me money to run the program are going to have to pay for an empty bed. They don't want to pay for an empty bed. It makes more sense that somebody's filled that bed because their money is already budgeted for. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm in a, I'm in a catch-22. I'm, I'm yeah. fighting with my hands tied behind my back. Uh, and it's, it gets frustrating because our work works. And we turn lives around. I don't want folks to come to my program and leave worse or, or leave the way they came. You have to leave here better. And I mean that. You have to be able to sustain your life and not make, we have to make crime unattractive to you and give you a reason to want to wake up in the morning, a reason to want to become a father again. There's so many folks out here that are just lost. Yes. yes and they is. don't even know they're lost and mm-hmm. will hold and fight for that identity of being a lost individual because they think that's who they are. To mm-hmm. break that down takes months, sometimes even years. Mm-hmm. And, but when you do it, the reward is so great because they don't go back to being the same person. Right. Well, DeAndre, how can uh, one enter into, you know, your Lifeline to Success program? The only qualification is a felony conviction. I don't care what it is. I don't care how many. I, matter of fact, I want people that are the, what they consider the worst of the worst, kill mm-hmm. people. I, that's what I, want, I want the tough cases because I know how they think. I know how they get to their position because I come from, from a different place. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't born in a place where crime was normal. And you just did what you saw other folks do. I made a decision to become a criminal. I had to learn how to become a criminal. And since I had to learn how to become a criminal, I know how to back you out of that process to take you back to what God created. Even if you've never seen what a good life looks like, I can teach you what a life absent of crime, death, despair looks like. But you got to first see it. I heard a, a parable that says, if you, help, if you want people to build ships, don't teach them the art of shipbuilding. Tell them stories of traveling the ocean. Because mm. when you inspire them to want to travel the ocean, they'll build a ship to go see what you sold. So I have to teach them what life can be like, even if they haven't seen it. Give them a reason to want to do it, and then give them opportunity to make it happen. Yes. Now, what does the program look like? What does Lifeline to Success look like once they join? They're like a family. Uh, I'm, <laughs> it's like they they come in when you come in the first day. First two weeks is just training. You don't. You can't be identified as a team member yet because you have to learn our culture. We have a culture here. Uh, we even have an honor code where you can't steal. I'm dealing with all these thieves, and you don't steal from each other. I leave my tablet out there, my cell phone, leave money. We don't steal from each other. Uh, but after you do that, you come in. We have class every morning from 9 to about 11, 30, 12. I teach the classes, and it's basic life skills. It's not about getting a job. It's not about how to write a resume. It's how do you sleep tonight knowing you just cussed your girlfriend out. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you deal with asking your baby mama who you had all the work before you went to prison? for $20, she give you $20, and then you go the next day, hey, let me get $20. And she said, didn't I just give you 20? You mad, thinking she being disrespectful. But no, she gotta pay the light bill. And since she gotta pay the light bill, she trying to make sure that you don't be blowing, you ain't blowing money. Not that she's not respectful of you, she's there trying to be a, a person that, because she had to do this while you were gone. Teaching folks how to deal with that, how to, how to deal with the trauma of incarceration, criminal behavior, all the negative things that they brought. And then after that, Two more weeks of that, they go to work with the team. We have contracts, so they're able to make a living, too. 
So they work for me too. So I have them all day from sun up to sundown. And it's intensive. It is rewarding. I bet it is. But it has its downtime. Jesus. <laughs> traumatized people and trying to help them to see they can live a life that is not traumatized. And it's, and it's a group of them. They bring their own traumas and they're all holding on to it. Different gang affiliations, different ages, different level of crime. Because I'm, a, I'm about to write this book, so I got to talk about this criminal code. Yes, come on, talk about crime. They think about a criminal as being a person that's a certain way. Oh, no. You got so many levels of criminality that don't make right. sense. So I, since I've been there, I can deal with, I can deal, I can have a classroom. There's a person that steals batteries out of Walgreens, a person that steals cars, a person that has killed three people, and a person that used to sell dope at a major weight in the same room. I got junkies and dope dealers working beside each other cutting grass. Mm-hmm. And if, if you ain't from the hood, you don't understand. <laughs> Junkies and dope dealers don't do nothing together. Right. Yeah, they they respect each other. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. the Lord gave me some. He we made it up. This mm-hmm. there was no program I, I I picked from and modified. No, no, there was no program. Mm-hmm. Me and my wife in the dining room made this up. Eleven, wow. twelve years ago now. Wow. And what does the success rate look like in Lifeline to Success? So, tricky question. When you talk to people that do ex-offender entry, remember, the national standard is about 30 to 45 people don't go back. Those are the people that go to programs. So, if you're not going back anyway, and you go to a program, and you don't go back, the program shouldn't think they did a good job. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't going back in the first place. They need your assistance. Mm-hmm. So, our recidivism is about 5%. But I don't really say, and what makes ours a little, you know, for me, what makes it a little more rewarding is we take people that are actively committing crime that were going back to prison. I've bought dope from folks. I've been given weapons from people. They give me their stuff when they get convicted in class and realize they shouldn't live that way no more. One time a girl was, I was having class and a lady, after talking, she gave me, she came and said, Mr. Pastor, thank you, I'm so sorry. Here's my knife, I can't keep it no more. Gave me a knife. We were going to city council meeting that day. We go to city council. I'm going through the metal detector. It's a knife in my pocket. Mm. Since they know who I am and what I do, they, I told them I just, that kind of stuff we do around here. We got it's a well, I'm gonna say too much, but yeah, it's, it's, it's. I got you. I got you, <laughs> Andre. I got you. Um, I and I appreciate you so much for sharing um your journey with us today on verbally effective and being so transparent because you know, like I said, I think with these celebrities advocating for so many people, like um, you know, prison reform has been a huge talking piece as of late in my in my opinion from what yes. i see but <clears throat> you're one of the people that have been doing the work out here so you know we applaud the work that you have been doing i pray that to success continues um to you know reform these individuals that have been incarcerated because they need it and a lot of people have been in prison and and really didn't even do anything i, I know you get a lot of those too right so I'm yep. sure that's equally as traumatizing to an individual Mm-hmm. That are that that was injustice, you know. That was that really didn't even commit a crime, but had to go to prison. Yeah, we hear a is. lot about that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about this with the celebrities jumping in, I appreciate the help, but they need to make sure they remember to lean on us. Yeah. Because when you ask for reform, you don't know what to ask for when you're in the room. Mm-hmm. And if you got the space to ask for, you need to know what to ask for because that's right. the specific things that we need. Not aspirational. There's some tangible things that can be done immediately to mm-hmm. change our condition. But if you don't know, when you get the opportunity to speak to it, that right. goes unheard. And then when they give you what you they, what you've asked for, they think they've done their part. 
-hmm. but there's so much that was left undone yes well you know what when when this podcast publishes we're gonna tag kim kardashian like crazy <laughs> <laughs> all right let's do it let's do it and monica and and master p and those that we've been seeing out here in the forefront lately but you have been doing the groundwork deandre so we applaud everything that you're doing with lifeline to success so how can everyone get in touch with you and follow the wonderful things that you're doing Thank you. Uh, I'm on Instagram and, and, and Facebook and Twitter. DeAndre Brown on both. Well, DeAndre Brown LL on Instagram. DeAndre Brown on Facebook. Lifeline Success has a page and a group on Facebook. And I'm on Twitter as well, Minister D. Brown Sr. Our website is www.lifeline, the number two success.org. But if you Google Lifeline to Success Memphis, we're the first thing that shows up in your browser. Amazing. Well, you keep on doing the work, DeAndre. We appreciate it. And I know that Lifeline to Success is going to rehabilitate a lot of people. So you keep putting that work in past Brown. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I would ask your audience to, if you get a chance, run on our YouTube page, my YouTube page, and look at our award, Emmy Award winning documentary, You Must Believe. Okay, we're going to check out that Emmy Award winning documentary, You Must Believe, right? Yes, You Must Believe. <laughs> We're definitely going to check it out. Thank you, DeAndre, so much for joining us today on the Verbally Effective Podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Ina. You're welcome.